0: What animal sleeps up to 20 hours a day, moves at a glacial pace, and only comes down from the forest canopy once a week to do their business? I'm talking about slaws, some of the most peculiar, most loved, and fascinating mammals on the planet. Welcome back to Rewildology. The nature podcast that explores the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. International Sloth Day is this Saturday, October 21st, and the show is celebrating with our first mini To get us slothucated, slothucated, slothucated. <laughs> Whatever version of that fun word you want to use. Today we'll hear from Sam Troll, co-founder and executive director of the Sloth Institute and D.R.N. Smith, DVM, wildlife veterinarian and the world's leading pygmy sloth researcher. We explore the natural history of the sloth. The differences between two-fingered and three-fingered sloths and the closest relatives in the evolutionary tree we dispel myths about why sloths move so slowly and why they come to the forest floor to defecate instead of staying in the canopy where they live. We also take a deep dive into the lives of the pygmy sloth, how it evolved, its top threats, and what we need to do today to conserve it. So pour yourself a warm cup of coffee or tea, or if it's after 5 p.m., maybe a glass of wine, Settle into your most comfiest of positions and get ready for a leisurely view into the wonderful world of the sloth. Our first slothy teacher is Sam Troll of the Sloth Institute. Based in Costa Rica, Sam and her team rescue, rehabilitate, and release sloths back into the wild, scientifically research sloths, educate the public about sloths, and are working to conserve and protect the group of animals for the future. And also too, before we dive too much deeper, I just want to take a moment to chat about slaws themselves. Since again, people probably don't know much about like the natural history and what these creatures actually are. Just right right now, they're just really hip and they're cute and their faces are plastered on a whole bunch of different paraphernalia of things like so my you, background
1: yeah well i mean come
0: on that is the cutest background <laughs> that's of all my time. picture so oh i'm allowed gosh. to put it there <laughs> i just like one just so cute so cute
2: but super
0: yeah, cute so cute but if you could just take a second just just explain a little bit more about slaws and even just whatever facts you want to list off but just educate mm-hmm. us about these amazing creatures
1: yeah so well i think one of the first Things to point out is that the two different kinds of sloths are not closely related. So the two-fingered sloths and the three-fingered sloths, and I say two-fingered and three-fingered versus two-toed and three-toed because it's much more accurate. They, the difference in the number of digits is on their fingers, not on their toes. And they also like unlike a dog, for example, that has four legs, sloths don't have four legs. They have two legs and they have two arms and they use them that way similar to a primate. You know, they don't eat with their feet. They eat with, I mean, some primates do actually eat with their feet, but <laughs> in general, you know, just like us, like we use our hands and our feet differently. So sloths are the same in that way. So just to start with two fingered and three fingered. And I feel like it's much more respectable to call them that way because when you call them a two-toed or three-toed, it's like ignoring the fact that they use their hands this like in a similar way that we do, kind of just like. Lumping them in with less evolved animals, no. But, uh, but, anyways, yeah. So, two fingered and three fingered, and the so the two different kind. There's six species total that is currently recognized by science in the world, and they're only found in Central and South America in the wild. And in Costa Rica, there's two different species. So there's the Colepis hoffmani, which is the two fingered species in Costa Rica, and Bradypus variegatus, which is the three-fingered species in Costa Rica, and the two different kinds have been evolving separately. They think for probably about forty million years, and so what that means is the similarities that we see are not based on a common ancestor; they're based on convergent evolution, which actually oh, makes sloths cool. the most extreme example of convergent evolution in mammals, which is pretty cool. Whoa! And so that is they so cool. <laughs> It's super cool. And so they do have a lot of similarities, but they do also have a ton of differences. And actually, this is my favorite fact about sloths, but the number of cervical vertebrae that they have is different. So as you may know, all mammals have seven cervical vertebrae, except for manatees and sloths. And manatees have six, but they always have six. And with sloths, with two-fingered sloths, they can have between five and seven. You no, know, three fingered. Yeah, with three <laughs> fingered sloths, they can have between eight and ten. What? So that so that <laughs> means that three fingered sloths have more bones in their neck than a giraffe, which oh I just God. think is crazy cool.
0: So is that how they can like do that whole like turn around with their neck?
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. And one of the things I always like to tell people when I start explaining like all the, the weird things that there are about sloths is that for the most part most of the the unique morphological characteristics that they have and the unique behaviors that they have most of those things can be explained by either their need to conserve energy or their need to be invisible in the forest because that's how they survive they survive by not wasting energy and they survive by not you know getting eaten by predators because unfortunately they don't have a lot of ways to protect themselves from predators except for going unnoticed so they need to basically be invisible so by being slow, they're not only slowly conserving energy, but they're also silent. And we definitely see this in, you know, the thousands and thousands of hours that we've been observing sloths in the forest. When they're moving, you barely hear them. So like you need to have a visual and you need to keep that visual or you're going to lose your visual mm-hmm. because because they're so silent. And so with the cervical vertebrae question, with the three-finger sloths, it really helps them to you know turn and look and maybe check out you know some noise behind them to see if it's a noise they should be worried about without moving their whole body and by not moving their whole body what do they do they conserve energy and they bring less attention to themselves because they're moving you know a much smaller piece so for the most part most of the things that's weird about them can be explained with those with those two things in mind which I think is pretty cool they are also excellent swimmers both kinds of sloths are excellent swimmers. There's a a really ugly rumor going around that two-fingered sloths can't swim. And it's not true. And I don't know where it started, but it's not true. Both two-fingered and three-fingered sloths are excellent, excellent swimmers. And again, that makes a lot of sense because all the places where sloths live, there are bodies of water. In Antonio, for example, there's the ocean and there have been Mm -hmm. sloths found like floating on driftwood in the ocean. So being able to swim, (laughs) of course, helps keep them alive out there though. I don't think they're any match for really aggressive waves, but still, you know, being able to float, being able to swim is really important. And then, you know, of course rivers and, you know, sloths are found all through the Amazon, of course. So in places like that, I mean, the rivers just flood really easily with with heavy rains. So being able to swim is essential for not drowning in a place where there's a lot of water. That you could fall into. But also, if you think about it, you know, rivers are like the roads of the natural roads of the forest. It's what separates different parts of the forest from another. And so by being able to swim, they're able to get from one side of the forest to the other to get to whatever things that they need. And also to get there with, you know, using less energy because they use a lot less energy swimming than crawling on the ground. So the fact that they're good swimmers, I think is pretty cool. What other
0: facts do I love about sloths? Why do they come to the ground? And when do they do that? Oh, man.
1: That is literally every ecologist's favorite question. And I mean, it's totally cool that you asked it, but I have to say it's like, oh my God, people like obsess about something else, please, because people are so <laughs> obsessed with why they come to the ground. And honestly, I think the reason why people are so obsessed with why sloths come to the ground is because they erroneously assume it's more dangerous on the ground for a sloth than it is mm. in the tree. But that's never been proven. It's just this assumption that people keep keeping the narrative to making this drama question of why would they come on the ground? But honestly, I think they come to the ground because it is safer to come down to the ground than it is to stay up in the trees, to go to the bathroom. So the reason, the main reason why they come down to the ground is to go to the bathroom and sloths, as you've probably heard, can hold their urine and feces for about a week. They don't have to hold it for that long. They don't usually hold it that long in captivity if they're well hydrated and, and eating enough food, but in the wild, they can hold it that long. And so by the time, you know, it's been a week and you haven't gone to the bathroom, as you can imagine, they've stored up quite a lot of material and they can actually lose up to 30% of their body weight every time they go to the bathroom. Wow. Which is super cool. I totally wish I could do that. You know, because like yes, that's a download. <laughs> the, exactly. Right. Before this zoom, I would just been like, well, I just need to go to the bathroom. All and right. I'm All right. Like look so much Six better. For this zoom call. <laughs> yeah. Fit <laughs> into that party dress. But <laughs> sadly, even though I work with sloths, I have not been able to adapt that superpower (laughs) but yeah so it's a lot of fluid and material that comes out every time they go to the bathroom so if you can imagine doing that up from the treetops would be extremely loud and every and even even if they were doing it every day is still loud for example every time i hear a troop of howler monkeys above they love to go to the bathroom in unison for for some reason But I mean, you hear, you know exactly where that monkey is in the forest. Even me with my limited human hearing knows exactly where that monkey is just by listening to them, you know, urinate and defecate from the treetops. So Mm. I know an ocelot or a bird of prey is going to know exactly the location of that sound if they go from the treetops. However, by coming down from the top of the tree to the ground, you don't hear anything. Like it's super silent and they go peacefully and quietly, very slowly down the tree, do their business and then come back up. So the only negative to coming down to the ground is that it does use some more energy because obviously coming down the tree rather than staying up at the tree is going to use more energy. But if you're going to use more energy for something, there's no better reason than to not get eaten because, well, that's the end. (laughs) Don't need to conserve any more energy because I don't need it anymore. (laughs) So I think that that's why they come down to the ground to go to the bathroom. There have been other theories, but... There was one that was actually described by some really good scientists, but not necessarily sloth experts, that said that the reason why they came down to the ground was because of mutualism between sloths, sloth moths, and the algae in their hair, because sloth moths do lay their eggs in the feces of the sloths. And I don't know if you're familiar with sloth moths, but it's this species of sloth, I mean, this species of moth <laughs> that lives only in sloth hair. And it is pretty cool. Sometimes it looks really annoying for the sloths because they'll be all on their face, and they can they can have like hundreds on them at a time. They usually have less. I mean, it it really varies. Uh, sometimes they have none, but they can have a ton of of sloth moss on them at once. And they're only found on sloths. So this theory was that the reason why they come down to the ground is so that sloth moss can lay their egg in their poop. And the reason why the sloth moths are important to the sloth is because when they die or when they you know get certain things in their hair, they or poop like poop in their hair, it helps the algae to grow in their hair. And then the reason why the algae is important to sloth, they hypothesize, is that the sloths were eating the algae off of their hair, and using it for nutrients. And so that secret solved like that's why they come down to the ground to poop. The problem with that is literally in what like seven thousand hours we've been watching sloths like literally observing them scientifically like never once have we ever seen them lick their hair the way a cat does like. They don't do that at mm-hmm. all, not mm-hmm. once. They, they might eat algae, like they eat random things off of tree bark and you know, different plants. And of course the algae is gonna be in the environment around them. I mean, where do we think it comes from? So they might be eating that algae, but they're not eating it off themselves. So that kind of you know negates that theory of why they come down to the ground. And it's also possible they come down to the ground for multiple reasons. Like why does it even have to be one thing? Right. I think I personally, I think the most important thing is they don't want to die, but there could be multiple reasons why.
0: Mm, yeah. That makes total sense. And hopefully that answers everybody's question for that exact mm-hmm. reason. <laughs> so I was like, I have mm-hmm. to ask it. I have to ask it, but that, that is, yeah, no, totally. That's a great, yeah. Great response. Great answer. And then from like an evolutionary history standpoint, what is like their closest relatives? Where, where are they placed in the tree of life? This very special, unique creature. Mm-hmm.
1: So they're in a suborder of uh, mammals called xenarthrins. And the other xenarthrins that exist are anteaters and armadillos. And so those are technically their closest living relatives, both you know, I have to say, there's something special about xenarthrins in general because anteaters and armadillos are both like really fun species to rehabilitate. Like they're characters, mm, total doof- really? total doofuses, <laughs> like total idiots. I adore them. Um, they're so funny, and so and sloths have similar characteristics to that. So I guess like being a doofus is a part of being as an arthran. I don't know, but they're <laughs> amazing. I I love them. I love them both. So yeah, they're their closest relatives, and actually the the classification used to be called e because, which means having no teeth because ant eaters have no teeth at all. And then sloths have interesting dentition. That's another thing that's interesting about them. So they have no incisors at all, like no teeth up here and only molars and premolars. And so three-fingered sloths only have little tiny nubby molars and premolars that continuously grow so that they can chew, you know, the leaves and on all the tough things that they chew on a regular basis to feed themselves. And then two finger sloths have the molars and premolars. And then they have these pseudo canines, which are really big, like typical canine-looking canines, but they're not technically canines because they're positioned a little bit further back. So they're technically premolars. I call them pseudo-canines, but they're a big sharp teeth. And a lot of people ask, well, like if they're vegetarians, why do they need big sharp teeth? But I mean. Biting into mangoes and different hard seeds. Like you do need some decent teeth to get into like really hard flesh and they will eat like, especially the two fingereds do eat a bit of fruit in the wild, but also as peaceful as I say, sloths are, and as much as they do generally mind their own business in the wild, which is one of my favorite things about them, they don't shy down from a fight with another sloth if they need to. And two finger sloths, especially, can be quite aggressive with one another, with one another, especially if they're like defending territory, or you know, if it's two males defending wanting to go out on a date with a young lady sloth. So they will, you know, use those teeth to bite each mm-hmm. other. And they have extremely strong jaws. You well, know, that they makes can sense, chew- all that chewing. <laughs> yeah. They can chew through rock. And we've actually we had a volunteer who was trying to rescue help rescue a sloth off a wire and she got bit and it broke her finger whoa she had to have surgery yeah sloth bites are no joke sloth bites are (laughs) no joke i mean like i said they can break bone legit can break bone but also they they don't have the cleanest mouths ever they have Mm. you know they have a nice healthy community of bacteria in their mouths and throughout their intestinal system you know to break down all the cellulose and the things that they eat so it's natural and it's good for them, but it's not so good for when you get bit. So you have to be super careful for it not to get infected. And I have colleagues that, you know, she got bit in her arm and had to have parts of it surgically removed because wow. the infection got so bad. So it's it's good not to touch sloths, not only just for the sloth, but also for yourself to, you know, make sure not to get bit
0: mm. Could, Our second slothy teacher is Deoran Smith, DVM. Deoran is a wildlife veterinarian who also wants to contribute to conservation. And she fell in love with her country's endemic species, the pygmy sloth. For over the past 10 years, she has been studying the species alongside local indigenous communities that live with the animals. Oh, I can't wait to really start diving into these sloths. So, okay. I think maybe a logical place to start would be people probably don't even know there is such a thing as a pygmy sloth. So maybe let's start there. (laughs) Where is this pygmy sloth? And is it different than its, I guess, quote unquote, bigger counterparts? What makes this species special? And then I really want to get deep into your project itself.
2: Yes. Well, yeah, in Panama we have three species of slots. The Bradipus variegatus, uh, who is the three-toed slots, is plenty distributed in all Panama. Um the Coloepus of Mani, the two-toed slots, plenty distributed in, in all the, the mainland or or in Panama. But we have uh, the unique species, an endemic one, the pygmy slot, was the only one. A, in critical danger who live in a small island called Escudo de Veraguas Island, who is located in the Caribbean side of Panama. Why is so important? Because it's the only one is, species who is, has a... Um, okay, this is difficult to pronounce for me. It was a uh, dwarfism. Oh, dwarfism. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. what... That's not an dwarfism. easy word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it this species experiment uh, something that we know as the dwarfism phenomenon. That's why it's so different uh, to the other species. Uh, their size, uh, the weights less than the species, species from the mainland. And of course, is in critical endangered because live in a very small island. So any kind of disturbance in this island is going to affect directly this species. In general, looks similar to the bradipus variegatus. When was discovered as a new species in 2001 uh, by Anderson and Hanley, they made uh, morphological um, um, measurements of the spool, of everything, of the body, and they compared to the different slots from the islands in the archipelago of Bocas del Toro. That's why the pigmy slot, who live in the oldest island from the archipelago of in Bocas del Toro, it is less. Um, is a dwarfism. Dwarfism phenomenon. Have that dwarfism phenomenon, and this dwarfism phenomenon is when a species, a mammal, a big mammal, is, is, is lives in um, a specific area. Probably don't given too much resources. Eventually, through the years, is going to be smaller or reduce their their you know their size. While the species or animals, smaller animals in that uh, specific area that is small like an island, has a lot of resources, probably is going to be a little bit more bigger, a bit bigger than animals from the mainland. That's why in, in, in Escudo de Veraguas we have the pygmy slot who is dwarfism, dwarfing. But we have uh the human bird who is a giant human birth in comparison in comparison to the mainland. So that's why um the pygmy slow is so important, because it's, it's unique. And of course, it's part of an island who is too small. So that's why that's why it's uh, a endangered species, critical endangered species.
0: Mm. So then what is the biggest issues that they're currently facing or the biggest threats?
2: Well, this is very uh, interesting because in the beginning of my project, when I was there um, and I was talking with the indigenous community, because I, and when I started, I started to walk, to walk with them, to be with their, to live with the indigenous community, just to know more about what they know about the Pygmy Slot, what they know about the island and how can I um, give them more knowledge about how the species live in there and how to protect them in the future? And in that period of time, like seven years ago, one of the big traits was um, the number of people there using, a lot of people there using their, their trees, the mangrove, uh, because they're using the mangrove for cooking. Some other important trees because they use them to build houses in the island, and a lot of uh, fishermen and divers living in the island uh, during the season just to, to do to use the resources from the island, but at the same time using the forest that probably is of course important from the pygmy slot. But now one of the threats that probably not going to change a, too much from that time is the, the increase of tourism mm-hmm. in the Island. Now everything changed. Now there are more people um, with tourists using the Island as an, a beautiful place to stay there. And the pygmy lot is one of the attractions. So that is, something sensitive because it's an important species and we have to be, we have to increase our information about their treats. I mean, if they're healthy, if they are, you know, we are doing genetic studies too. And this kind of um, perturbance or disturbance from the people's more anthropogenic activities in the island is going to put this Small animal in, in trees, and that is the problem that we are facing now with the pygmy slot. Is obviously it's one of the most flat species and is charismatic species, but at the same time, is attractive for our track called um, the illegal traffic of a species. Mm. So, this is another threat that the py- pygmy slot is, is facing.
0: So, our people so i i want to make sure i completely understand what like the new threats that are coming in so are these people from mainland panama coming and like taking them out of the wild and putting them in the illegal market or are they just like setting up like tourist selfie stations or is it a blend or is it the indigenous community seeing like a way to make more money through tourism like is it a blend of all of this? Like, what, what have you seen on the ground here?
2: Yes. Well, recently we know that it's, everything is blended now. Mm. Um, there are tourists that go there and they want to take a picture with the big slot They want to hold the big slot and take picture. And we know that because indigenous communities, there are small from different areas and everybody knows themselves. And when I go there, they say, oh, well, uh, I bring um, I wrote some tourists and they wanted to, you know, be close to the pygmy slot. And sometimes there are not people from the area. I mean, they are from the mainland, not exactly from the coast near Scudo, not from Dutch communities, because in 2013. Something not good happening on a They were taking or ten pygmy slots for somebody who wants to um, have it in a private collection in United States. In 2013, that happened, and every thing changed since then. The indigenous people get mad with everybody because I lose one year of um, I lost one year of uh, research because they closed the island for everybody, because they started to don't trust in everybody in anybody mm. uh, since then. And the attention from the pygmy slot increased. Because now they know that this small species, this animal, that they probably they don't care that it's there because they are doing something in the, you know, in the in the, they are diving for for lobsters, they are fishing they are not exactly seeing the pygmy slot as a resource. It's just like the slot there. And now they know that people around the world want the pygmy slot. So they were more aware about what are you doing here? And that was probably one of the questions that sometimes they asked me when I was there in the beginning, what are you doing here? Why do you want to protect this species? And of course, on the other hand, we have that kind of people with um irresponsible tour operators that go to scudo and they just wanna be there to take selfies not exactly to hold the animal but and at the end what they receive from scudo nothing escudo is more than just a beautiful island scudo is has a lot of story to tell with the people who visit them. It's it's a legacy from the indigenous community people. It's so important for them. Um, They call Dego, they don't call Escudo. Dego is the name of the other indigenous, according to their stories. The, The Dego indigenous fight with the Nove indigenous, and then the Noves win that fight and Finally, the dego became a school escu- in Escudo, uh, became of part of the resources from Escudo. And I remember in the beginning of my, of my research, when I was there and I spent the night with, you know, with people around and I was asking of the stories of Escudo, some of them, they were scared to be to the forest, to go to the forest. They just go to the beach and... They have their small houses there, temporary houses. And they never go to the forest because they don't feel that it's important. Sometimes if they have to, you know, log in, in. Mm -hmm. they do, or they they did in that moment, but they don't feel that they have to go inside the forest. Because some of them, the oldest one, or the elder people, were scared. But the young people, they don't care. They don't believe in those stories because part of the culture is, uh, the indigenous sometimes is going to, they're losing their stories. Mm -hmm. You know, the stories Mm -hmm. telling from the eldest one um, is now losing from the youngest one. And now they don't understand what is so, it's, it's, it's difficult for them to connect why the island is so important and why they don't go, don't, never visit the forest inside the forest of the island because for them now it's, it's so easy to go there. And probably they want to explore another opportunities of incomes. And that's why we always persistence to do education in the communities because people change, people need, need to work. Need to maintain their families in some way, and Scudo probably is the only resource. So we have, we really believe, and I believe, that the only way that Scudo is going to be there forever, or at least all the resources there are going to be enjoyable for more than we want, or for m- more time, um, is just do and community sustainable, a sustainable tourism littering by the people from the communities. And it's a good way to, for them to see the school as a, okay, I can receive a resource from this island and I protect the island too. If they start, and this is something that I always wanted to let them know, if you destroy the mangrove area, which is really small part of the, uh, of the island or oh, you destroy some trees that probably are important from the Pygmy Slough, but you don't know because we are in that process to understand that. Uh, at the end, what you're going to show to the tourists? Nothing. <laughs> they don't want to see, they're not going to see the Pygmy Slough. They're not going to see anything. Just what? Even the marine resources from the island is still unknown. How is it? How is, you know, there are a lot of study that we have to do there. And... It's not an easy way, an easy place to work because it's remote. And um, you need a lot of uh, work with the community and being persistent.
0: Okay, so we have all of this information and you're actually there. You're invested in the community. They've welcomed you. Now, what are you actually studying? What is your research? What kind of questions are you looking to answer? And maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing, what have you discovered
2: yourself in your work so far? Yeah, well, in the beginning, we were with the simple things. How many people slots are in the <laughs> island? And this is a question that probably the people still ask me. And, and I say, OK, we are in the process to analyze all the data because in the beginning, we were changing a lot of the methodology. Mm. With my advisor because it's not easy. Uh, we were concentrated the mangrove area, so we have permanent transect there, and we walk to the transect every year, twice. So we have that number of individuals that we probably know how many are in that part, and if something happened or any variation, you know, put everybody in alert that something has happened. Mm-hmm. But still, we have to analyze all the data collected since 2014 so it's a lot of work and also we include the behavior of the pygmy slots so we put some uh gps color to 10 adults uh, females and males and actually we we all the pygmy slots uh colored we put innovative names so the people my team they, according to the personality of the slot, we just give some uh, specific names, and it was it was good because when we have to return because the colors uh, they uh, stay with the color for a year, so the ten, the time that we were there just to see what that everybody everything was okay, um, they come with me and they just start to call them with the name, so they remember the name that they given uh, to the pygmy slot. so. It was it was a, it was funny and it was perfect. Um, so it was uh, a part of the project, you know, the home range of the species uh, on the island. And also, uh, we are in that process. And probably with the preliminary results, it's not that different from the Radicus variegatus in mainland. So it's it's interesting. Everything, all the all the the founds, uh, all the, the, the things that we are discovered through these years. And also we include the genetic analysis just because we need to know the, you know, the variability of the species uh, in this small island that also is important. Um, we collaborate with, um, sorry, a botanics collaborate with us to identify uh, plants that are using with the, uh, to the pygmy love as a refugee and or as a diet. As part of their diet or uh, as part of uh, a refugee. Refugee, I think that is the name. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything and all this information is going to be really important for the conservation plan for the species and from the management plan from the island. Because, you know, now we know that there, are the mangrove is not the only diet from the pigmy law the leaf. Uh, from the mangrove trees, we know that there are more trees, important trees in the forest that are important from the Pygmy slot, um, and some of them are just connectors to go to other part of the island. So it is every year we we know that there is a lot of information that we need to to study with the Pygmy slot. A lot of things is going to happen in the future with this species. If 30
0: minutes of sloth fun was not enough for you, please go back into the archives and check out the full interviews with both Sam and DRN, episodes 46 and episode 74. Thank you for joining me on this wild adventure today. I hope you've been inspired by the incredible stories, insights, and knowledge shared in this episode. To learn more about what you heard, be sure to check out the show notes at Rewaldology.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected with the Rewildology community, hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. I read every comment left across the show's platforms and your feedback truly does mean the world to me. Also, please follow the show on your favorite social media app, join the Rewildology's Facebook group and sign up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter. In the newsletter, I share recent episodes, the latest conservation news, opportunities from across the field, and updates from past guests. If you're feeling inspired and would like to make a financial contribution to the show, head on over to rewildology.com and donate directly to the show through PayPal or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewildology love. Remember, rewilding isn't just a concept, it's a call to action. Whether it's supporting a local conservation project, reducing your own impact, or simply sharing the knowledge you've gained today, you have the power to make a difference. A big thank you to the guests that come onto the show and share their knowledge with all of us, and to all of you rewildology listeners for making the show everything it is today. This is Brooke signing off. Remember, together we will rewild the planet.